Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. Hello, welcome to the Read Smart podcast. I'm Razia Iqbal and in this series we'll be exploring quality non-fiction and looking at its staggering growth in popularity over the last five years. We'll speak to authors and prize judges along with booksellers and publishers and we'll go behind the scenes to follow the 2020 awards later this year. For new listeners, the Bailey Gifford Prize rewards excellence in non-fiction writing and brings the best in intelligent reflection on the world. It covers areas of current affairs, history, politics, science, sport, travel, biography, autobiography and the arts. The winner of this year's prize will be announced on the 19th of November. In this episode, we're exploring the issues around freedom of expression in the modern world and how this impacts writers and readers of non-fiction. We'll be hearing from Yasmin Chongar, translator of the 2019 long-listed I Will Never See the World Again by her close friend Ahmet Altan. It was smuggled from the Turkish prison in which Ahmet is serving a 10-year sentence for giving subliminal messages in support of the 2016 attempted coup. But first, we're joined from a studio in New York by 2017 Bailey Gifford Prize winner and documentary filmmaker David France. And here with me in London, Hannah Trevathan, who is the Events and Development Manager at English Pen. David, Hannah, welcome to you both. Thank you. Nice to join you. Uh, it's great to have you here. Um, David, let's uh, let's start with with you and, and get you just to talk a little bit about uh, about your book, um, which won the, the prize. I mean, uh, th- this this was a, an extraordinary, I suppose, a full disclosure, first of all. I was one of the judges in 2017 um, where, when you won the prize, How to Survive a Plague. Um, talk us through the research that was involved in this because the the time scale of this book is over decades how did you how did you embark on writing the book the way that the reader reads it well you're right it does cover a, a large amount of uh, territory and time it starts in 1981 uh, but it's essentially a witness account of the early moments of uh, recognition that there's a new epidemic afoot. Uh, and, um, uh, and, and for 15 years, there was no effective medication. So that's the period that's covered, the plague, plague years of the AIDS epidemic. And, um, and I was the witness. So the, a lot of the research was done through lived experience, obviously. Um, and then uh, 15 years after that, when I began working on the book, uh, I was able to go back to um, my own archive, but also the archives of so many people living and dead who recognized that what was happening in the epidemic was not being acknowledged and was not being recorded and reported on. Uh, so there's, there are meticulous records of those years kept by people who wanted to make sure that that time wasn't forgotten. I mean, it, it, it is clearly a, a chronicle of, of the scientific, the political, the media battles that took place and the way in which uh, the, the gay community in New York in particular uh, was regarded um, and how it was treated. And, and, and as you say, you, you were somebody who uh, bore witness to all of this. 
I'm I'm imagining that this was a painful book to write because you were absolutely in the middle of it. It it was painful, you know. The um, uh, there was so much death uh, during those years um, uh, within uh, a, a very small and defined community. Um, uh, my community, the the LGBT community, that had just been. Uh, asserting itself kind of politically and civically um, was suddenly, uh, you know, assaulted by this 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 new disease, and was um, disregarded so across the board that um, that everything having to do with a response to the epidemic uh, needed to be fought for, uh, and we fought. We spent 15 years fighting for survival fighting for a transformation of the, the, the morality and ethics of the scientific community, the medical community, the media, as you pointed out, um, and uh, at the same time burying so many folks. Uh, it was a period that we didn't really have time for anything but this kind of desperate effort. We didn't have time really to mourn, to grieve, and uh, in my personal experience, uh, we, we had put that all away uh, after 1996 when the drugs came out and it became possible to survive the epidemic. We all scrambled to see what survival was going to look like um, and find new purpose for ourselves, uh, find, a, find a future that we thought we, didn't, um, we could not depend on. Um, and in that new struggle, the, that struggle for ongoingness, we 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 let a lot of the the that work of grieving uh, go by without addressing it. And I I noticed when I started working on the the book that um, that I had a reserve of of grief that um, that I hadn't accessed. So in, in that sense, it was hard to go back at those years and hard to remember in the kind of granular detail that I wanted to include in the book, what it felt like to not know if you were going to live or die, to not be able to do anything effectively to save the people that you loved, um, and what it meant to move on from one death to another to another. It was a mass death experience uh, and um, and much easier to forget than to remember. I wonder if you uh, accept that, although this is clearly a chronicle of activism, which which actually laid the groundwork for different kinds of activism that came that came mm-hmm. after it, that that this is also uh, the way in which the activists were perceived was that they were troublemakers, mm-hmm. and and I wonder about your reflection of that term. What what. What comes to mind, the resistance to even being labelled by the outside world in that way? Mm-hmm. Well, actually, it's, it was not altogether wrong. Um, the first Because thing you were making the, trouble. <laughs> exactly. The first thing that this movement had to do was to, um, you know, to get the cameras to turn on them you know, and focus on them. And the way to do that um, was not through cogent argumentation because we didn't have any access to anybody's ears. The way to do that was through troublemaking, through you know blocking traffic, seizing 
buildings, sitting in on uh, the offices of lawmakers, chaining ourselves to desks and to cars and to um, uh, doors and entryways. And that was troublemaking. It, it had very little to do with the demands that were being presented. Um, and certainly in the first couple of years, the, the community itself had no idea what those demands were. I mean, people were, I remember those early demonstrations. Uh, actually, in the first couple of years, they weren't really angry demonstrations. We were doing like candlelight vigils. We were, we were pr trying to bring attention to the death and the dying uh, and couldn't even do that. So um, then it just became kind of a screaming period of activism where people were demanding drugs. They were demanding survival, which is not something you can really demand. And it took a while before uh, the community developed this kind of movement base that uh, began to understand that nobody who the community was addressing knew how to bring it about survival and that it, it was going to take a more of a, a refined question and demand, not just help us survive, but get us this medication to do this work on this aspect of this new retrovirus mm. and uh, and really set out a, a kind of a, a strategy um, and um, uh, priorities for research. So it, what started as troublemaking became much more refined, but the troublemaking was still an essential part of it mm. uh, in order to get national and international public health authorities to pay attention to the community's demand for for this list of five medications to go into trials, um, it still needed an army of people chained to the doors in order to get their attention. Uh, Hannah Trevathan, at, at English Pen, you must be very familiar with the idea of people speaking out, making trouble, if you like. When you when you think about that as an idea, does it does it make you think? Oh well, this is what this is what's necessary. People need to shout about injustice in order for their voices to be heard, especially in authoritarian societies. Yeah, well, I think um, in the case of Ahmed Altan, um, who was shortlisted for the prize, he was very much seen as a as a troublemaker by the Turkish authorities. Um, and I think I would agree that um, collectively we should use our voices to to kind of talk about these cases and these injustices and those people who are really sort of speaking truth to power in in their countries. Um, but also, I think um, not to underestimate the um, the impact of very small acts of resistance as well. So, you know, in the case of listeners, they could write to Ahmed Altan in prison, and and that might not seem like very much to to you as the letter writer, but we know firsthand how much that means to the person in prison, and. That's a small act of resistance that you can have as a reader is saying, I've not forgotten you. I don't think this is right. And um, and that's really powerful. And and I think kind of with what, what David was saying is these kind of small acts build up and they and they can gather momentum. And we can, you know, call kind of the people in power to to think about their actions. And, and not least, I suppose, because in, in the case of somebody like Ahmed Altan, who was 
is not alone. You know, Turkish the Turkish authorities post the 2015 uh, attempted coup did imprison a huge number of people that they suspected of having been involved in in that attempted coup. And and uh, there is obviously a sense of feeling isolated when you are placed in a cell on your own, even if many hundreds or thousands of people in the case of that Turkish uh, attempted coup were put in jail. And that sense of isolation is is quite clear. It comes through in his book, but there's also a fighting against it, that he he wants his voice to be heard. Very much so. Um, and I think that's amazing, you know, in the case of Ahmed. Um, I wonder if I could just read something from, from the book which kind of speaks to this and... Um, in, in one of the essays, um, Ahmed says, uh, reality could not conquer me. Instead, I conquered reality. Um, and later in the book, he talks about, uh, he says, because like all writers, I have magic. I can pour, pass through your walls with ease. So very much about how, as a writer, you use your imagination to resist against that small space that you're within. Um And actually, the closing um, line of the collection is that um, because, like all writers, I have magic, I can pass through your walls with ease. So kind of throughout the book, he very much talks about how he is in prison, but he never wakes up in prison because he's imagining of other places that he's been. He's using his kind of writerly um, skills to to kind of think beyond the four walls of his cell. Um, And actually, I'm told he's kind of very kind and got a great sense of humour and he um, uh, speaks to his lawyer, Philippe Sands, who wrote the introduction and he's, he jokes to Philippe that Philippe will never be a, a proper writer because he's not been in prison. <laughs> and Philippe, of course, has won this, this, uh, <laughs> this the Bailey Gifford Prize with his book, um, East West Street. Uh, th- th- this idea of, of being silenced, uh, David France, I mean, I, the, the you have been working on this film. In, in fact, it had a, I think it's... Um, its premiere was at Sundance. Um, this this film, Welcome to Chechnya, which is about um, the LBGT community in Chechnya. Just tell us a little bit about the the substance of the film and how hard it is for people to live freely um, if they are part of that community. Uh, well, the film, which just premiered last month. Um is about activism again, um, the activism of the queer community in Russia um, coming to the aid of the people who are being targeted for assassination in Chechnya uh, because of their sexual orientation. And, um, and, and like these other stories we're talking about, this is a, a story that has been uh, neglected by the uh, by the international community, uh, neglected by the press, uh, and the the silence um, that has been uh, forced on the people who are fleeing for their lives um, has been remarkable. Um, uh, it it's uh, I, I love the line about the the, the magic of the writer um, about giving voice and um, imagining beyond boundaries. Uh, the problem that I think uh, uh, the Chechen queer community has, has had is that because they're being hunted, because this is a kind of an ethnic cleansing campaign from within, it's an effort by the Chechen authorities to cleanse, as they say, cleanse the Chechen blood of, uh, of LGBTQ um, members. 
it's not enough for them to flee um, because if they're if it were known that they were still alive they would be targeted no matter where they go and we've seen we've seen people targeted through Europe by um, agents of the leadership in in the the Chechen Republic in the south of Russia um, and and so I had to, for the film, devise a way to allow them to have their voices, uh, to give them back their agency over their own stories. Um, and I, uh, I did that in the film by um, using a new technology to, to actually uh, replace their faces. Um, uh, so, so, and, Explain and that. Just tell us how that them. works. This is more than just pixelating people. It is. It is. I, I felt that one of the things that was going to be essential in telling this story is for us to see the humanity of people who are going through this. What does it mean to be um, to survive the kind of torture that they've survived? What does it mean to be hunted? What does it mean to live in the shadows for the rest of your life? And, and I wanted or needed to see what that looked like on a human being's face. So I asked the people who participated in the film, if I could shoot their faces and and find some way to to uh, to, to protect their identities, um, and so, so the technology that we use is uh, is uh, a, a artificial intelligence and um, a, 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 an algorithm by which I was able to ask twenty two non Russian non-Chechen activists, mostly in New York, to lend me their faces, which uh, then I would reduce at, into a kind of an algorithm that would map over the faces of the 22 people who are in the film. So we see their faces, we see them responding to their circumstances, we see their terror and the pain of the dislocation from their family and from their people, but we see that through the, someone else's skin, um, so it's a it's a, a brand new technology, and um, and it's really remarkable how it allows uh, the humanity to 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 kind of resurface in this crisis. Wow, it at sounds a time when nobody has been able to come forward wow. and talk about it in, for fear of their own lives. David Franz, Hannah Travadan, thank you both very much for speaking to us. Thank you. Thank you. And we're joined now on the line from Istanbul in Turkey by Yasmin Chongar. She is the co-founder and general director of P24. It's a non-profit platform for independent journalism in Istanbul. She's also the co-founder of Turkey's online book review K24 and the Istanbul Literature House, an editor, essayist and translator. Chongar is the author of four books in Turkish. Yasmin, welcome to the Read Smart podcast. Let's start by talking about your relationship with Ahmet Altan and what happened to him, which resulted in him being incarcerated uh, in a Turkish jail. Oh, he was accused of attempting to overthrow the government. And as silly as it sounds, that uh, he was arrested for that. He was at the very beginning, he was arrested for giving subliminal messages in support of the coup attempt, which happened in uh, July 2016 in Turkey. Uh, they, 
suggested that he knew of the coup attempt, the coup plans in advance, and he, uh, the night before the attempt, he gave uh, on national television in a live broadcast, he gave subliminal messages in support of that motion. Of course, that was absurd. He didn't know anything. It was as a big surprise to him as to anyone else. And uh, then the charges changed over time, uh, and he was sentenced to life without parole for attempting to overthrow the government by using force and violence, which uh, makes you think that he flew some jets over the Turkish parliament or bombed the parliament or drove some tanks uh, uh, on, on the bridge in Istanbul which, of course, he didn't. Uh, the only evidence against him is three newspaper columns that he wrote and that TV appearance I just mentioned. Um, then, uh, I mean, it's a long process. I'm going on a little bit. But then this charge uh, was recently changed. And the last sentence he got is uh, aiding and abetting a terrorist organization without being a member. And for that, he was sentenced to 10 and a half years. And that sentence is now up for appeal. And he is currently in jail? Yes. The um, the book, I Will Never See the World Again, was assembled from notes given to his lawyers. How common is that kind of thing, given how many people are incarcerated in Turkish jails who are writers or journalists? Yeah, I'm sure, uh, especially writers and journalists are trying to get out the work they're doing. And uh, recently, um, uh, we have seen some journalists uh, publishing uh, books of poetry or at at least uh, publishing individual poems in magazines and such. And of course, uh, the leader of the HTP, the opposition uh, party, uh, Salatin Demirtas, who is also has been in jail for over two years now. And has, this is a Kurdish politician, we should yes, make clear. Uh, yes, a Kurdish, a young uh, Kurdish politician, a very influential, outspoken politician who has been in jail for over two years now, has managed to publish two novels. Um, uh, but I think uh, a memoir as such, uh, as Ahmed's, uh, is, is very unique. I, I know there are some journalists and writers who wrote, um, you know, books of essays or memoirs of, or published their diaries while in prison after they came out. But Ahmed, as we speak, has been in slavery prison for over 1,230 days. Uh, I think, if I'm right, it's 1,236 days today. And uh, yeah, he managed to 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 write this book uh, during his uh, second uh, second year in in prison and, uh, and get it out to me uh, in his personal letters to me. You know, uh, one by one, the essays came in pieces, and and then he he put them in order in his mind, and I I, I listened to 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 what he suggested, and and uh, you know, there we had a book. The the process of translating. 
uh, the words of somebody who is incarcerated is a very particular kind of uh, responsibility, I guess, uh, as well as the very uh, specific nature of the, the relationship that you have with this person and their place in, in, in Turkish letters. Just describe for us how you approach that. I mean, how much of a responsibility it felt to you? Oh, it is a very, I mean, it's very tasking emotionally, of course, for me, because um, you have to understand Ahmed is my best friend in life. And we have worked together in the past. We have remained very close. Uh, you know, we have great confidence in each other and, and a very, very strong friendship. And the fact that he is in jail for something he hasn't done, of course, is every second of every minute of every day of my life is, is the thing I'm dealing with in my mind. I'm angry about it. I'm sad about it. And I'm, I'm trying to do something to change, to change that. So this is, you know, my life right now. And of course, um, I was very aware of the fact that although he was confined to a very small cell, Ahmed is a person who is very strong mentally, who has a very vivid imagination, and who is always very full of life. And if he could write, if he could keep writing, and if he knew people would be reading what he wrote, he would be able to overcome that confinement, overcome that lack of freedom. So for me, translating his words to English was also kind of, you know, like acting as a bridge, so to speak, or as a go-between him and the readers out there in the world, uh, in the larger world, the people who, who don't read Turkish, obviously, to be able to read him as he is in there, what he is experiencing. So it was, I mean, it was like, a, it was it was a wonderful job, but it was not, it was a duty. It was something I did uh, to be able to live to be able to cope and and to to hopefully help him a little bit. And how important was it then for the book to have been long-listed for this uh, pretty significant non-fiction prize in English? Oh, obviously, he was very happy to, to receive that, that news, and, and so was I. Uh, I know about this prize. I have read books uh, which had been long-listed, short-listed for it in the past or, or even won the prize. And and uh, it, it it is a very very honorable recognition. And then the book went on to in, in other languages, though you know, went on to receive some very important uh, literary prizes in Europe. All of that shows to him that what he's doing in that little cell is not for nothing, and that it's being recognized, it's being read and and liked and admired around the world and that his voice is really reaching people it really goes down to what he says in the book that he has this being a writer he has this magic he has this power of imagination which helps him to to pass through the walls with ease he literally felt that that he was passing those walls and i that's pretty. That's pretty powerful uh, feeling to have. Uh, let, let's just widen the discussion a little and talk about the uh, the way in which President Erdogan has narrowed the public space for open freedom of expression. The more he consolidates his power, the the less space there appears to be in uh, Turkish political public discourse. 
What's been the impact of that on the way in which writers can try and find ways around it, whether they are self-censoring, any number of things that are happening to writers who who feel that it's just too big a risk to take, given how many people are thrown into jail with such ease? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure many people are self-censoring. Uh, I'm sure many people are not writing the, the columns or, or the essays or the articles or even the books that they would write if uh, they were not living in Turkey at the moment. Uh, but having said that, there are also many people out there, young journalists, uh, young writers, poets, who are producing every day and uh, perhaps they're saying the things a, a little bit differently. Perhaps they don't feel completely free to create and to write and to express themselves. But um, the act of expression, the act of creation, the act of literature is still going on in Turkey. And that's very, very precious. It's not black and white and it's not a total sense of submission. I think uh, we are all... Um, Everybody's trying to do something, whether it, it is, um, you know, criticizing a book or writing a poem, writing a song, putting up a play. Uh, Turkish theater is, is flourishing at the moment. There are all these little theater groups putting up new plays written by young Turkish writers. So it is, it is going on. Is it difficult? Yes. Is it perhaps um, self-censored? Yes, I suppose so. Sometimes tongue in cheek, yes, but it is still it's still alive. How hopeful are you, though, that there is a, a way out of the the current climate? Because when you have something like you know more than fifty Nobel Prize laureates signing an open letter to President Erdogan, urging him to release Ahmet Altan, falls on deaf ears. A whole process is at work which doesn't seem to make any impact on the way in which he conducts himself politically I, I just wonder how how much how much of a balance there is between hope and despair in the context of of freedom of, of expression and freedom of letters yes um, I have to be hopeful we have to be hopeful we have to remain optimistic in order to keep working toward it. And what we're doing is really demanding the law, the rule of law to be respected, because I believe um, deep in my heart that if the rule of law is respected in Turkey, Ahmed and many others will be free. So it's it's the country's own laws, it's the international laws. And, and I know it's difficult. There have been setbacks, as you might no, Ahmed was freed by the court, which sentenced him to ten and a half years. He was released on, you know, on appeal, and then he was rearrested in eight days, nine days. So, so this was just last year. This was just in November 2019. Exactly, this was just in November, and this was after like 1,200 uh, or 1,100 days in jail. It's been around 100 days since he was rearrested. Um, we will keep working. And we will keep asking the authorities to respect the rule of law. We, our lawyers will keep working. And I would like to do, I mean, to say something here. Perhaps someone will hear me out that the European Court of Human Rights 
uh, before which Ahmed has a pending application for almost three years now, has to look into his case to see if there is a violation or not. Uh, that's very, very important, and I want to say that. Um, but, yeah, we have to remain optimistic. I have great confidence in, in the people of Turkey, Turks, Kurds, and all other, all other nationalities who, who live in this country. We have been through hardship before, and uh, it's a very young and, and powerful a uh, powerful group of people i think and and yes we will we will get over this we have to keep working how much do you even have contact with him are you able to visit him are you able to get, yes. get communications with him yes. in some way yes now that the state of emergency is thankfully over at least on paper um i can go see him once a week uh, he has an hour only a week uh, to to see his, his family and 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 uh, myself. Um, so every every Friday I go see him uh, for an hour in prison, and uh, and then every week I send him two letters, uh, and then he sends back two letters. So we we keep in in very close communication in that sense. Yes. And how would you characterize his frame of mind and how he is? He's very strong. He is very optimistic, very, very positive. And uh, after this book we just talked about, he wrote a novel, a new novel, and he spent almost the entire uh, last year uh, reviewing it and revising it. And uh, he's almost done with it. And it's a very, very powerful and interesting, interesting novel. And he has ideas for two different books in his mind. He's constantly writing and imagine you know writing in his mind and then putting it down on paper and that that keeps him alive and that's that's his life so he doesn't really feel he's in a cell he never complains when you go and see him visit him sometimes i mean i try not to but sometimes i or maybe his kids even you know bring our day-to-day problems to him and not in the most cheerful mood sometimes he is always very cheerful and very strong and you know we leave the prison with our morals boosted well that in and of itself is uh, inspirational to hear uh, yasmin chongar speaking to us from istanbul in turkey thank you so much for joining us thank you for having me That's all we have time for on this episode, but do join us next time when we'll be speaking with the insiders of the non-fiction publishing world, Georgina Laycock, non-fiction publisher at John Murray, and Helen Cornford, co-founder of Particular Books and publisher at Profile Books. We'll also be joined by Andrew Holgate, literary editor of The Sunday Times and editor of The Test of Time, What Makes a Classic a Classic and The Cost of Letters. How much do you think a writer needs to live on? To hear the latest news from the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction, sign up to our newsletter through the website and follow at BG Prize on Twitter and at Bailey Gifford Prize on Facebook. Thanks again to the Blavatnik Family Foundation for their continued support for this podcast. Bye for now. Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation and produced by Four Communications.